Sal Khan has probably taught more people than just about anyone on the planet. And his philosophy is that pretty much everyone can learn most anything, no matter how advanced the material. In this video, I want to familiarize you with the idea of a limit, which is a super important idea. It's really the idea that all of calculus is based upon. But despite being so super important, it's actually a really, 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 really simple idea. That's one of the videos on Khan Academy, which has grown from a grassroots phenomenon on YouTube to a nonprofit with a mission to change education. And there is a big idea behind Khan Academy that Sal Khan outlined in a TED Talk back in 2016. The talk was titled, Let's Teach for Mastery, Not Test Scores. He challenged the audience with a question. What percentage of the population do you think could truly master calculus? Or organic chemistry? Or what percentage of folks out there could significantly contribute to curing cancer? He guessed the audience might say something like, maybe 20 or 30%. Could do those things if we had an amazing education system, 20 or 30 percent. Then he pushed back. But what if that estimate is just based on your own experience in a non-mastery framework, your own experience with yourself or, or observing your peers where you're being pushed at this set pace through classes, accumulating all these gaps, even when you got the A that 95%, what was that 5% that you missed? And it keeps accumulating all the way that you get to a more advanced class and all of a sudden you hit a wall and you say, oh, I'm not meant to be a cancer researcher. I'm not meant to be a physicist. I'm not meant to be a mathematician. And I suspect that that actually is the case, but if you were allowed to be operating in a mastery framework, if you were allowed to really take agency over your learning, and when you get something wrong, embrace it, view that failure as a moment of learning, that number of of the percent that could really master calculus or, or, or understand organic chemistry is actually a lot closer to 100%. This was the big idea. What if it was 100%? And so Sal Khan has created videos that explain calculus, from the very fundamentals to some pretty advanced stuff. And he's made videos to teach organic chemistry. Though you'll probably want to go through the math videos before you do them. Khan Academy has been around for about 15 years. And it's gotten huge. It got even more popular during the pandemic. It now reaches 18 million learners a month. And has been translated into 51 languages. But what about that broader goal of changing the education system? by basing it more on having students master material rather than getting good grades. How is that part going? For today's episode, I got to ask Sal Khan just that. Hello and welcome to the EdSurge podcast, where every week we look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young, the managing editor here at EdSurge, a national nonprofit newsroom covering pre-K all the way through executive ed. For the most part, students find these Khan Academy videos on their own, maybe when they're stuck or or curious. But these days, more students are also likely to get assigned Khan Academy videos as part of the curriculum. That's because in the last couple of years, Khan Academy has partnered with school districts who pay a small fee to officially adopt Khan Academy's videos and learning platform. That effort, it started out with about nine districts on board, But as so many schools were forced online due to COVID-19, the project really took off. And today, 288 school districts use the program. It seems like this is an example of this nonprofit trying to go to the next level 
when it comes to its bigger goals. So I was excited to connect with Sal Khan to talk about how he sees things going and what's next. We talked via Zoom while he was on a walk through his neighborhood in Mountain View, California. So you first started Khan Academy more than a decade ago, and he's like 13 years old or something, in your bedroom closet um, to tutor your cousin. Um, and it, it seems like other students just happen to find these videos on YouTube. These days, very different situation. You know, more and more students are actually assigned your videos as part of classwork. And I wonder, you know, moving to that zone, how has that changed how you, you know, how you think about videos and, and how you make them um, now that you're kind of part of the system in a lot of places? Yeah. And, you know, the crux of, of Khan Academy is actually not the videos. I know a lot of folks associate us mainly with the videos because there's, I guess, some brand connection there. There's, uh, it's the easiest things to consume. But even from the earliest days at Khan Academy, even when I was tutoring my, co- my cousins, before I made the first video, I was making the, the Khan Academy practice software where the, my cousins could get uh, as much practice as they need, get immediate feedback, learn at their own time and pace. I, as their tutor or their teacher, could understand what they had mastered or what they were struggling in so I could do a more focused intervention. At the time, I was doing it over the phone. Uh, and then the videos became a, a supplement to it. And it's really continued to be the case. Even today, most of our energy and resources are really how do we create that mastery-based, personalized practice that can also meet the needs of a mainstream classroom where teacher might also want to do uh, assigned practice. And we also have been working with teachers from almost the beginning. In 2007, there was a teacher, John Mormino, who's a fifth grade teacher in Sidwell Friends, who had used the very nascent version of our teacher dashboards to have his students learn at their own time and pace, do interventions as appropriate. And over the years, it's now several hundreds of thousands of teachers. Uh, But to your point, there has been an evolution year after year for us to not just be for the independent student, not just be for what we would call the grassroots teacher who decides to use this as a supplement, but to become more and more integrated with the system. And so that's been a journey of, as we make the practice and the content, it can't just be our intuition of what's right, although that obviously will play into it. It's got to be, let's make sure we're implementing the standards. Let's say, let's make sure that we are mapping well to curricula. Uh, let's make sure. And then about four or five years ago, we've had about 50 efficacy studies on Khan Academy. They show, especially in classroom settings, that if students are able to do that personalized uh, practice, they're able to learn 20, 30% faster than expected. And so we said, look, if we really want to have the impact that we want as a not-for-profit, let's go, we have to work to, with districts in order to reach all students. And when we started working with districts, they said, you need to give us and our teachers support, training, integration with our IT systems, district level dashboards. And so that's another muscle that over the last four years we've been uh, trying to build. So we want to keep the spirit of that grassroots, independent, direct to consumer, so to speak, model of Khan Academy. But we have been building that enterprise muscle so that we can fit within the system as well. One of the newest efforts that you have at Khan Academy is is one aimed at school districts to, to integrate Khan Academy videos and resources, as you say, your whole system and approach into K-12 schools. Um, since Khan Academy is free anyway, I, I wonder what the reason is to set up this service. And I understand schools are paying for it. So, you know, what is it that, that this really does that's different than, than what you had before? As you mentioned, there's hundreds of thousands of teachers who are practically every school district in America. There's Uh, many teachers who are using Khan Academy. But the realization is when we went to districts and they said, we need support, we need training, 
We need integration with our rostering systems. Ideally, integration with our assessments. Uh, we want integration with um, uh, you know, district level dashboards. That's the type we want co-teaching, you know, all of these features that are very specific to that uh, in-person classroom setting. That's when we said, look, this is going to take extra resources. And for us to be able to continue to build and, and, and invest there, we've got to co-resource this with the districts itself or maybe even other local philanthropists. And so that's the, the genesis of the uh, Con for Districts offering. And then another related offering, which is called Map Accelerator, which is in partnership with the NWEA, which is all around, hey, the map growth assessment is taken by 20 something plus uh, percent of kids in America. But how do you connect an assessment like that to actual practice, to actual activity in the classroom? And so now the map growth assessment for the districts that are using Map Accelerator, it acts as a essentially a placement, a diagnostic for the personalized practice on Khan Academy. And then as the students do that practice, the district, the teachers, the principals are able to connect how that work connects to uh, growth on the map growth. So it, it, it completes that assessment practice loop, uh, which is missing in most of the world. Yeah. And I wonder, you know, back to the district, the, the sort of the typical district work, um, where are you working with a district? And I understand you're in several now, a hundred, couple hundred, um, paint a picture of, you know, what an individual teacher's experience would be that might be different if you can. In the grassroots model, a teacher would issue a class code, kids sign up. It might be a different email address and the kids are using someplace else. Here, we're formally rostering with the district. And then as, and then as, so the, the, the system will know, okay, student A is part of teacher B's classroom. And that's valuable. One, it simplifies it for the teacher to just have all of that stuff auto rostered. But also, it's more valuable for the school leaders and the district leaders to be able to roll things up and understand where is there, where is the, the engagement good? Where could there be more work on the engagement? Where are the kids progressing? Where might they be having more trouble progressing? The other thing that the teachers get is support and training, uh, which is, you know, we've been able to do very lightweight forms of that with our free offering. But as you can imagine, more intense support, more intense training uh, takes, takes a lot of resources. So that's where we co-resource that uh, with, with the district. And we're continuing to add more and more features that we know are very particular to that district offering. Uh, for example, next year, uh, features like co-teaching are going to be added to it, uh, which allows an interventionist or a second teacher to be able to uh, both work with the second cohort. So there's some technical things that we're able to really invest in on the district offering that we haven't historically been able to do in the free offering and also do all the support training, district integration, things like that. From the beginning, one of your key philosophies has been mastery learning. Um, and I wonder just for, for those who, who may not know that concept, what is your, your elevator pitch um, for mastery learning? I know you've probably given it a lot of times to, uh, to folks. Well, in a non-mastery system, you move together students at a fixed pace. Uh, after a little bit of lecture and homework for a couple of weeks, you give an assessment. If let's say you get a 90%, I get a 70%, even though that test has identified gaps on what just happened to be on the test. You didn't know 10% of it. I didn't know 30%. We give students those grades. You get an A minus or a B plus, I get a C. And then we move on to the next concept. And especially in areas like math or science, you're usually going to be now building on that gap. So I didn't know 30% of basic exponents. Now we're moving on to logarithms or now we're moving on to negative exponents. Now I'll be lucky if I get to a 70% on that. Maybe I get to a 60%. But now we're going to move on to equations that deal with exponents. <laughs> and so those gaps become, not only do they persist, but they become, it becomes much and much harder to learn 
future topics. And this isn't theoretical. We know the numbers in America right now. 70%, 70% of kids going to college have to get remediation. And not remediation isn't uh, that they're going to take an 11th grade or 12th grade type of math. 70, 80% of kids aren't even placing into college algebra, which is really algebra two. So when they're not placing into that and they're going into remedial math, which isn't credit bearing at the college level, they're essentially taking sixth or seventh grade math. So this non-mastery world, year this is the great majority of kids in America. And if you look at kids from historically under-resourced communities, you're looking at 90-something percent of those students. They go through the motions of sixth grade, seventh grade, algebra one, algebra two, geometry. Some of these kids take pre-calculus and calculus. Then the colleges say, you have so many gaps, we're going to take you back to sixth or seventh grade. So hugely demoralizing for everyone, huge uh, cost of wasted resources. It's the biggest predictor of not being able to graduate college. It's the biggest uh, gating factor. And in my view, it's primarily because we haven't focused on mastery. We focus just on seat time. So the alternative is, as you're working, if you get a 70%, you should have the opportunity incentive to get that to at least a reasonable level of, of proficiency. You don't have to necessarily gate the student, like keep working on it until you get a 90 or 100. We say, look, maybe you'll move on to the next thing, but keep working on this thing because that's going to come bite you back later. And it, intellectually, it makes a lot of sense to every educator. But if we were having this conversation 50 years ago, it, you necessarily would have to have students working at different paces because every students have different gaps. Students are ready to move on at different rates. And so with one teacher and 30 kids in a classroom, how do you navigate that logistically? And that's where Khan Academy can be valuable because now the students can learn and master at their own time and pace. The teachers get dashboards that help them uh, keep track of this, of these multiple uh, of, of paths that all of these students are, be able to do focus interventions for the students who are still struggling, even if the interventions on Khan Academy aren't fully meeting their needs. They can have one-on-one -on -one time, small group time. Teachers can pair students with each other, help tutor each other in the classroom. And then more students are likely to, one, be operating in their zone of proximal development, their learning edge. They are actually have the opportunity and incentive to master concepts. And then from a social emotional point, uh, rather than sitting passive in a class that they might be bored or lost in, they're engaging uh, with each other and engaging on a human to human level. So do you, I wonder, do you feel like Khan Academy is moving the needle um, on how much schools in America adopt this narrative that, that, you know, makes so much sense. And you say, you know, educators get about mastery learning is, is Khan Academy making a significant, you know, push in this area or like success in this area? It, it's a mixed answer for right now. I think we have helped put these ideas into the zeitgeist and we have also helped make this somewhat self-service for a lot of students, families, and teachers. Mm. But we, it has not been to the point yet that it has become the norm in classrooms by any stretch of the imagination. So, you know, the conversations we continually have within Khan Academy are, how do we meet the system where they are, where the system really is around synchronous teacher-directed assignments, everyone do the same thing at the same time. We can support that because we have the content and even there having an automated assessment or, or practice that kids get immediate feedback, they get video support, teachers get dashboards around that. That in and of itself is valuable. But then if we can make that a hook into the mastery learning, maybe over the next decade, we can make these ideas that we just talked about a more, a more mainstream. The other lever I think we have is working with the system itself. 
where we move to a competency-based world, which is really, you know, I, I view competency-based learning as a, a coarser form of mastery learning. Mastery learning tends to apply to individual skills or small sets of skills, while competency is, do you, you know, do you know algebra now? Do you know, can you write well? Things like that. And for example, the state of New Hampshire, if you can get certified mastery in a course on Khan Academy, they'll give you high school credit for that. Or we're doing a pilot right now with Howard University where we're going into Title I high schools. And this goes right to the heart of this college algebra question. And if the students in those Title I high schools get mastery on this course, which we're calling Howard College Algebra on Khan Academy, it's not a public course yet, so people shouldn't be expected to find it yet. We're doing the pilot right now. But these students are then, if they get mastery, are going to get transferable college credit from Howard University, which would solve, they wouldn't even have to take remedial math. They're actually going to place out of the college algebra itself. And so those are the types of uh, systemic things that I think we can start laying the groundwork for, which will make it even easier for our school districts and teachers to say, okay, now the system is respecting mastery as well, respecting competency-based learning. Now I can just um, also move my classrooms more in that direction. Is it harder, has it been harder to move, you know, teachers and systems toward mastery learning than you thought when you first started talking about this, when you first started Khan Academy? I'll give another mixed answer. Yes and no. I think the ideas of it have had a more positive response than I could have expected. When I made that first TED talk in 2011, it was immediate positive response, not just from the ed reform type crowd, but from teachers, teachers, every teacher will tell you 30 kids in my room. They're all at different levels. I can see the gaps in their knowledge, but I feel the pressure to just keep moving forward and covering more material. I think the implementation has been harder than I suspected. There is so much gravity, you know, even just the way the grades are done. They're not done in a mastery-based way. Like once someone gets a C, that C is there forever. Like you, we have no systems in place right now that if a year or two later you understand the material, that should get modified. You know, most fifth graders have mastered their second grade material. So why should that C in second grade sit there? Uh, you know, we have a lab school and we had a new teacher and one of our seniors was uh, improving their mastery state on some of the intro programming course that we have. And he, he used to have an approaching mastery. And then he went back and did the assessment to show that he had now mastered it. And the teacher's like, well, it just, just feels wrong. It feels like they're cheating in some way. I was like, well, do they know that concept? And the teacher's like, well, of course they do. That person's interning at NASA right now as a programmer. He's actually managing college students who are software engineering majors. I was like, so it would actually be really misleading for something to sit on his transcript that says he hasn't mastered basic algorithms yet when he's actually managing computer science kids in, <laughs> at the college level uh, now as a senior. So it's, it's really not, it, it's just there's so much inertia uh, and, and, and to some degree dogma because we all grew up in the non-mastery system uh, but I do remind folks, other, other um, domains, learning to play an instrument, learning a martial art, learning a sport, they have always and continue to be mastery learning. And that's why you don't see kids who are on a basketball team in college who don't know how to dribble or, or you know, someone who, if they've, if they've really been doing piano, they got their scales right. Like, that's not something that you're going to have someone who's, a, you know, doing piano for seven years and they still haven't learned their basic scales. Uh, but you see that all the time in, in core academics, especially in math. So Khan Academy has grown in so many directions over the years. Um, and, you know, you mentioned the lab school, um, you, you, uh, you know, moved into early learning with Khan Academy kids. Um, what area is, is next, do you think? A couple of areas. On the Khan Academy side, all of the work that we're doing with districts is a big focus point, focal point for us. 
We are uh, continuing to expand our content. Uh, science is a there's a big push there. We're exploring uh, the push in the humanities. Obviously, that's been a hot topic. I think there's a way to do that where most of America would feel really excited about it. Uh, I think this notion of connecting Khan Academy mastery to credit or opportunity in the real world, that's where that Howard pilot around college algebra credit for mastery yeah. on Khan Academy plays in. I think mastery on Khan Academy being a signal for jobs or college credit or college admissions, MIT and University of Chicago have now on their applications, uh, your transcript on this project called schoolhouse.world which is essentially certifying your mastery of Khan Academy. And the schoolhouse.world is interesting in and of itself. It's another not-for-profit that I started last year during the pandemic to give people free tutoring. And the way that they can get free small group tutoring over Zoom is by leveraging volunteership. The volunteers need to certify their knowledge on Khan Academy. They take a video of themselves taking a unit test, and then they upload it. It gets peer-reviewed. And then they go on a journey as a tutor and they get reviews on their tutoring um, capability. And that's where the MITs and the U Chicago's are really interested is that it's great if someone can master calculus. It's even better if they can master it and then teach it. And they're highly rated teachers of calculus. Then they surely know the material. They've retained it and they have communication skills. They have empathy. Those are the people that you want on your campus. I'm talking to employers. Isn't If I can show you a, someone of any age who is a great tutor of statistics, why wouldn't you want to hire them? And, you know, what else do you need to know about that person? So I think that's the next frontier for Khan Academy. The content, just continue to, to build that out. Uh, how do we, uh, and then how do we certify knowledge of it? What other supports like tutoring can we have? And then how can we make that a signal for college admissions, credit and, and internships and jobs? Um, is there anything else you wanted to add um, around, around any of the things we talked about? Nothing, nothing significant to add. Uh, you know, I think, we're in an interesting time with the pandemic and everyone talking about online learning. There's a lot of negatives, but I think all of what we've talked about, personalization, mastery, learning, it's, and learning not being bounded by time or space, it's even more important now than it was two years ago because we all know the variation in student preparedness has widened. Uh, just as we've had a K-shaped recovery in the economy, we've had K-shaped learning progress in, in the country where families that had digital access that were in more well-resourced schools with more uh, at-home support, they kept on learning during the pandemic while a lot of kids didn't. So I think th this conversation three, four years ago, even though I think it's a slow motion emergency, when we look at the number of kids who need remediation at the college level, uh, it didn't have that sense of urgency with, with the world. My hope is now people are seeing it in even starker contrast. And so they feel a little bit more urgency around solving this. Well, great. Well, we appreciate you taking the time to talk with, uh, with us. Thank you so much for doing this. Great. Thanks so much. This has been the EdSurge Podcast. Every week we are here with new episodes like this one. Today, as we publish, happens to be Giving Tuesday. And we are thankful to our listeners out there and all of our readers at EdSurge. If you want to support this show, the best way to do that is to leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you are listening. Or sign up for our weekly podcast newsletter where you'll get links to bonus materials about every episode. This installment was written and produced by me, Jeff Young. You can find me on Twitter at jryoung or on email at jeff at edsurge.com. Music this episode by Steve Combs. And if you want to call in with a response to something Sal Khan said or, or anything in a recent episode, try our listener hotline at 202-990-8525. That's 202-990-8525.
0.25. We might use a comment on a future episode. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening.